Welcome to Brain and Events. We are delighted to be talking to Taylor Sier, who runs an excellent podcast on free will. But we're going to be talking about one of our favorite films, a film that's really hit the lights out in the indie scene, but has sort of had mainstream uh, approval as well. It's called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And we think there's a range of very strange philosophical things that are being explored in this film. Taylor, would you like to tell us a bit about it? So the movie starts with Evelyn Wang, a Chinese-American immigrant who, with her husband, Waymond, own a laundromat, and uh, they live above the laundromat. And things aren't going well. As we, we come to find out, Evelyn's life is chaotic. She's, a lot of her relationships are strained. So at the beginning of the movie, her husband, Waymond, was ready to serve her divorce papers. She doesn't know that yet. She's caring for her elderly father, who's just traveled to the U.S. She's also about to go to a meeting with a tax auditor about her business, the laundromat. And also she's trying to plan a Chinese New Year party at the laundromat. And then her daughter, Joy, and her daughter's girlfriend, Becky, show up and want to have a conversation with the grandfather, Gong Gong, about Joy's having a girlfriend, being gay. And Evelyn tries to dissuade her from this, thinks it's not good for him after just traveling. He's, it's going to upset him. But everything is chaotic at the beginning. In one of the earliest scenes, they go to the IRS office to meet with the IRS agent who's played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And um, as they're going up to the office, they're in the elevator. Wayman, the husband, something changes about him. And all of a sudden, he's giving Evelyn, the main character, instructions. He's putting a headset on her, giving her instructions to follow so that she can somehow send her consciousness to a different universe within this multiverse that they inhabit. And so we come to find out that this is called verse jumping, sending one's consciousness to a kind of counterpart of oneself in another universe. And we discover that what's happened in the elevator is that Wayman's counterpart from this other universe, which they refer to as the Alphaverse, has done exactly that. He's verse jumped and is talking with Evelyn now. And the kind of backstory here, the premise is that for every decision that you ever make, there's another universe in which some counterpart of you makes a different decision at that time and things unfold differently, no matter how seemingly insignificant those decisions may be. Okay, so we come to see many of these different universes. This is what's so fun about the movie and maybe absurd about it. We see similar universes, but we also see universes in which, you know, people have hot dogs for fingers and in which some one in which there's no life at all. So we see a lot of different universes along the way. Okay. So why does, uh, Alpha Waymond want Evelyn to verse jump with him? Why is he giving her all these instructions? Well, it turns out that in his universe, the alpha verse, Alpha Evelyn, the counterpart of the main character is this brilliant scientist, I should say was this brilliant scientist before she died in that universe, but she developed this verse jumping technology, but she also had a daughter, uh, Joy, same as her daughter in the main universe. And she's, she pushed her so far and also somehow gave her kind of supernatural powers that let her verse jump at will and, and control the matter around her, pushed her so far that she's now this threat to the existence of the multiverse itself. She seems to be building something that could destroy the entire multiverse. And Alpha Waymond wants this Evelyn to stop her daughter in this other universe. 
her, the villain character, if she is a villain, her name is Jobu Tupaki, which they make many jokes about along the way because it's hard to remember and then say. Okay, so what happens then? Well, many kung fu fight scenes ensue. We eventually see the thing that uh, Jobu Tupaki has built. It's She's put everything on a bagel, right? Not just sesame, poppy seeds, and salt, but all her hopes and dreams, all the different breeds of dogs, every, everything. And when you look through it, she tells us, you see the truth that nothing matters. So we come to see that Jobu Tupaki is just kind of zoomed out and seen everything that exists within the multiverse and feels small and insignificant and is close to despair. And in fact, she's building this bagel, which will allow her to be annihilated, but only at the cost of annihilating the whole multiverse. And along the way, Evelyn gets some of these powers and is close to despair herself, but partly through seeing the way that her husband, Wayman lives and his way of fighting through kindness, she decides she's going to try to save Jobu Tupaki, her joy, and prevent her from annihilating herself and then the whole multiverse. In my favorite scene in the movie, the way that this is depicted, it's a universe where there's no life, but there are these two rocks that appear to be having a conversation each other with each other, but just through text on the screen. One is Jobu Tupaki and one's Evelyn. And the Jobu Tupaki character has fallen off this cliff at the Grand Canyon. And this is their way of depicting despair. And the Evelyn character, the other rock, falls down with her, goes seeking after her. And then this is a huge spoiler. This is how the whole movie resolves. We see that Evelyn's able to convince all the joys, including Jobu Tupaki, not to give in to despair. And all the relationships in the movie are restored. And the movie ends on this sort of hopeful note that despite how chaotic the world is, even given our smallness within the grand scheme of things, we can sort of recognize the absurdity of our condition and choose to create meaning anyway, through our relationships, at least. Now that sounds like a good summary of the movie. So I'm curious, the movie seems to present two theories of meaning. So the one theory is that the multiverse undermines meaning. So it makes life meaningless. And the bagel is going to implode the universe and turn everything to nothing. And that's one way of seeing this multiverse theory as reducing the meaning in our lives. Why? Because whatever choice you make, someone else some other version of you will make a different choice and it seems to just nullify the importance or value of your choice. On the other side, you've got the, the movie ending with meaning being instilled through personal relationships. So personal relationships are what instill significant amounts of meaning, significant enough to prevent the implosion of the multiverse. So which is right? Does, if a multiverse existed, would it enhance or diminish the meaning in our lives? That's a great question. I guess my view on that is neither. There's got to be some third option, but you're right. I think the filmmakers who go by Daniels, they both have the first name Daniel. They're grappling with questions about the meaning of life. And in the movie, it might be Jobu Tupac at one point who says there, you know, at times in human history, we've started to, we've made scientific discoveries that have made us realize that we're not at the center of the universe or we're maybe less significant than we thought. And 
the multiverse hypothesis is a very vivid way of highlighting our cosmic smallness, right? It's not just that we're this tiny speck within the, this vast universe, but this universe is just one of many universes, maybe an infinite number of universes. So it looks like no one is significant in that kind of, that way of seeing the world. And I guess I took the Daniels, the filmmakers to be doing something akin to what Nietzsche does when he has his character say that God is dead. It's like, well, if there's not going to be any transcendent ground for meaning and significance in our life, what's going to happen? It looks like nihilism follows, like nothing matters. That's what we see when we look in the bagel. But then I think like Nietzsche and maybe like 20th century existentialists, including people like Sartre and Camus. In fact, in one interview I read with the Daniels, they referred to Camus at one point as an inspiration. I think they see the right response to the multiverse hypothesis and to threat of nihilism in the way the existentialist did. You should create meaning in whatever way you can. And the way that the characters do it in the movie is by finding value and significance in their family relationships. Not sure that the film is saying that's the way to create meaning, but it is this sort of existentialist idea that we imbue our lives with meaning. We get to create value. Incidentally, I think it's interesting that they go this sort of existentialist route, use the multiverse, and it's part of the premise that I mentioned earlier. You know, for every decision we make, we not only could have gone another way, but you did in some kind of alternate universe and your counterpart did, I suppose. It sort of illustrates the idea of radical freedom that we get to create ourselves in any way that we want. And yeah, even the tiniest decisions we make have these big consequences. It sounds a lot like Sartre. Now, I guess for me, what I love about that, what the filmmakers are doing and what I love about the existentialists is they're grappling with really important, big questions, but I don't ultimately find the existentialist response compelling. I think we want something more than that. We want cosmic significance, or at least we think, no, there's gotta be something more than just the meaning that we can imbue our lives with. We want something like kind of transcendent significance. So, you know, I'm a theist. And so I think, you know, if you don't have God in the picture, it's a lot harder. If you do think that there's a God, well, then it's true that you are here for a purpose, at least on most theistic pictures, there is something like cosmic significance. And even what the film recognizes as valuable at the end, like the projects or relationships that we do in fact care about and that do seem to give our lives meaning, those themselves can take on a kind of cosmic significance in that kind of picture. So I like the idea that there is this big problem if you don't have the transcendent in the picture. I just don't find the movie's response to that or the existentialist response to that totally satisfying. Yeah, so we had on David Benetard to talk about the meaning of life and Thaddeus Metz, and they have these different but compatible accounts of what meaning is about. So Professor Benetard takes the view that one can have terrestrial meaning. In other words, the projects that you're involved in could be meaningful, like pursuing truth, beauty, and goodness. That particular characters here seem to derive meaning from their loving relationships. And he thinks, yeah, that can be meaningful in an earthly way. And some people are going to have, you know, the ability to affect their communities. Some people are going to be able to, you know, have a long lasting effect. They come up with a vaccine that cures COVID, let's say. But he says, once we start zooming out from the perspective of the universe, from the perspective of all history, you know, we're still just the pale blue dot in the middle of nowhere. And so from that cosmic perspective, you know, there's very little meaning. And it's not clear to me that adding in a God would make any difference to that. It seems that 
maybe a god could have a meaningful existence in the sense that it put all of this in motion it holds up the whole of reality it's got let's say all these different projects burning at the same time it's going to exist for eternity that being might have causing significance it's not clear that we would have it and you might think that if a god does exist that in relation to that being our meaning is even you know further reduced so the existence of god might make things worse for us so and I think you're right to question this existentialist account that it can't just be a meaning was is whatever you make up because and this is something that Thad Metz discusses he says well if meaning is a purely subjective question and that it's just up to you to decide what's meaningful he says well imagine that for you what's meaningful is to stand in queues on end to keep a very precise number of hairs on your head to rewatch episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and eat your own shit he says surely you'd be mistaken about that stuff being meaningful. It might be pleasurable, you might like it, but it wouldn't convert it to meaning just because you believe it. But there's something else that you get at which is really interesting, which is the sense about how do we look at the free will question? So in some ways, to cash out, it's radical free will. You can do whatever you like. And what happens when you make a choice or face the choice that the universe sort of splits and the other decision also gets made? And... I wonder how that works. Is each character totally free? Is each character determined? Does it make a difference in determining their free will that these other possibilities get popped into existence? Yeah, you asked so many good questions and raised so many good points there. I guess to go back to the thing about meaning and about God, I guess the reason that a lot of people start to see into the bagel and despair when they take the zoomed out perspective at least one thing that could be going on is that they see that all the people who know you can be impacted by you are eventually going to go out of existence. I mean, ultimately, there's this worry that the heat death of the universe, there will no, be no being to remember any of this. And that starts to look like grounds for despair. But on typical theistic pictures, you don't take those things for granted. You think there's either an afterlife or that there's cosmic significance in that there will be people that you continue to engage with and they continue to be impacted by you. So I think there are other ways to go too, but I guess that's what I would say is all the grounds for despairing at the zoomed out perspective, and maybe even some of the worries about are not being put here for a reason. I think those things are questionable in some deep stick pictures. Now, does God have more of a meaningful life than us? I'm not sure what to make of that. And I'm not sure whether God's having freedom that God has or the kind of meaning creating capacities that maybe we don't have, what that would do to, to our capacity for meaning. I'd have to think more about that. I should say, this is not an area that I research and it's something that I talk about with students a lot. I like to teach the existentialists, but, and I like to teach contemporary stuff on the meaning of life by Benatar and Susan Wolf, but it's not something I thought too much about. Anyway, about the free will question and about what's going on when you know, you make one decision, but then the counterpart makes the other decision, right? Is everyone determined? Is this a way of representing indeterminacy that like you made one choice, but the other was genuinely open to you. It's interesting that uh, some scientists who take the multiverse hypothesis seriously as a way of interpreting quantum mechanics, see it as a deterministic interpretation of the apparent indeterminacy in the world. So really on that way of seeing the multiverse. The reason that all these different possibilities are realized is because they all must be realized. And so if you're in one universe where this possibility is realized, it's not that you could have done something else. It's just that all of these 
you know, various ways that things could develop do in fact exist and do in fact develop. So one natural reading of the question of the freedom of the agents in the multiverse is to say, well, everyone is determined. So if they're free, that's going to have to be compatible with their, their being determined to make exactly these choices because that's the way their universe is and, and develops. I don't know if you have further thoughts about that. Yeah. So what I'm interested in now to talk about is the different metaphysical questions that mm -hmm. the movie raises. So one of them is you discussed the multiverse and a definition of that, but before Marvel movies and the multiverse <laughs> became very popular in mainstream media, uh, philosophers talked about something called modal realism. So it would be interesting to contrast those two views if they are different at all, perhaps they have mm -hmm. the same view. So that's worth discussing. And then the second question is not about the identity of the worlds or the universes we're talking about, but the identity of the persons. So can we really talk about me in another universe or me in another world? Is it me? What makes it me? Or you talked earlier, used the word counterpart. What's right. the difference between a counterpart of me and me? By the way, there's a great sci-fi series called Counterpart. So th Please. these questions have become very interesting in mainstream discussion. Imagine David Lewis would have loved this if, if he was still around. So it's, a, it's a pity these philosophers uh, from the 50s, 60s, 70s aren't around today. But, uh, but yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I do wonder what David Lewis would think, because on the one hand, you're right. Like, so the idea of modal realism is for all the possible ways that things could be, there is a world where those things happen or that they are that way. And all of the worlds are real in some sense. So modal referring to possibility here, every possibility is real in some sense. The way that things happen in our world and in our universe, I guess, is just one among many ways that things could be and on the modal realist picture are, we just think of our, our world as special because it's ours or it's actual to us, whereas these others are possible in the sense that they aren't here. And yeah, some ways of thinking about the multiverse sound a lot like modal realism, especially when you hear scientists using the multiverse hypothesis for their purposes. One way of talking about the multiverse is to say, there are all these different universes, maybe they have different laws or constants of physics. Maybe they have a dif different initial conditions, you know, whatever the, the case may be, all these different worlds, universes, but they don't interact with each other, or I should say they're causally isolated from each other. So what happens here can't have effects in some other universe. The multiverse is all these different universes that are causally isolated from each other. Even the hypothesis I mentioned where it's sort of a deterministic interpretation of quantum mechanics, the multiverse sort of, there's the sort of realization of all these different possibilities. Most people talk about that hypothesis in terms of the universes being causally isolated from each other. So that starts to sound a little bit more like modal realism in everything, everywhere, all at once. That is just not the case that because, well, I mean, the only reason the action gets going in the movie is because you can do something like verse jumping that will have effects in another universe within the multiverse. So you sort of have to give up the understanding of the multiverse as these isolated universes. You have to think you can somehow get from one to the other or affect what's going on in another part of the multiverse. That raises puzzles. Maybe we could talk about that too. I mean, one of one kind of consistency problem for the story is, well, if our account of the multiverse is, you know, for every decision, you know, if you could have made some other decision, well, that's realized somewhere else in the multiverse, you might think but the decisions we're watching the characters making are just 
decisions like the rest. And so there's some universe within the multiverse where they make different decisions. But the thing we're looking at the end of the movie is the possibility of the annihilation of the whole multiverse. So is there a universe where Jobu Tupaki and Evelyn stay in their state of despair and destroy the whole multiverse? It seems like the premise of the movie requires, yes, that, that, that is a possibility. There is a universe where that happens. But then at the end of the movie, we watch the universe and within the multiverse continue to exist. So it looks like there's a kind of tension there. It's not an outright contradiction. Anyway, so I don't think the movie really cares that much about the metaphysics of the multiverse and about modal realism, but it is cool to see those parallels and then to point out what's different in the movie's premise, especially this idea that you can affect what's going on in the other universes. I guess we should say something about the personal identity thing. Y'all might have more to say about this than me. I don't even know that I have a settled view on personal identity, but I guess I was thinking that the movie... The reason I called the different versions of Evelyn counterparts is the movie makes it seem like these are different ways that things could have gone for her or for someone a lot like her. But then once they happen, we have two different Evelyns. In fact, a lot of the funny bits at the beginning where Evelyn is talking to this other Waymond, she starts calling him Alpha Waymond, is that he's nothing like her husband at all. Like he's a totally different person, it seems. And yet he's through the technology inhabiting her husband's body, like the body of that universe, the waymond of that universe. So I was thinking that the movie wants us to see all of these different counterparts as just that as counterparts and not the same, literally the same person. And that's why it's funny when Wayman's consciousness gets interrupted by Alpha Wayman's consciousness when he uses the technology. So Jason has a view, which is that you can't have gappy existence. He thinks that you need to persist continually over time. And the consequence of this might be that when Alpha Wayman injects his consciousness into Wayman, that it pops Wayman out of existence for that chunk of time, mm-hmm. which would then result in Wayman's death. And that when Alpha Wayman pops out, you then have not a being that's come out of hibernation, you have a clone mm-hmm. of Wayman that has sort of now been birthed through this process. I wonder if you have a view on the plausibility of that position. I just want to insert something. It's quite plausible on the account of the film, actually, because if we're talking about counterparts here, there'll be a counterpart where his existence wasn't interrupted, right? And Mm. it seems like that is a different counterpart to the one where it was interrupted. So Mm. when you say clone here, we might just talk about counterparts, a different counterpart. It does seem like one, right? Yeah, that's interesting. But the movie also makes it seem like when Waymond wakes up from this sort of hibernation after Alpha Waymond stops taking over his body, he says something like, wow, that was a fast elevator. Because for him, it seemed like it went from floor one to floor 10 in like no time. I take it that whatever you want to say about, you know, dreamless sleep or other potentially gappy, you know, points in our lives. Yeah. Maybe consciousness can be suspended altogether for a long period of time or something like that. If you want to make sense of that and being able to survive that, waking up from that, I would want to say, well, you could say the same thing about the character in the movie. The wrench though, is that during the interim, there's some other person using his body. But if you want a psychological account, personal identity, you might not have to worry about who's inhabiting the body when. Yeah, it gets very interesting, especially in light of severance, where there is someone else inhabiting the body. So it really is a nice analog. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Very interesting. But you would agree that in universe one, where someone steps in and interrupts my consciousness for an hour versus universe two, where they don't, there is a distinction and there might be two different, right. there are two different universes, right? So it seems like there's two different counterparts there. They're not the very same person. Right. Yeah, that's what I would want to say to make sense of what's going on in the movie. I guess an alternative, since we've already brought up Lewis, an, an alternative is to say, well, because all of these different Waymans sort of branch from the same initial Wayman, that's fission every moment of Wayman's life. Maybe Wayman just is the collection of all these counterparts, like really each of these Waymans is one temporal part of this giant Wayman, but one kind of special problem here is that you have all these different Waymans able to kind of interact with each other. It looks like they're distinct centers of consciousness who have different personalities, radically different personalities in some cases. So they look like distinct persons to me as much as me and some other person who doesn't look like me at all in the, in another universe might be distinct persons. I suppose there's a sense in which as a form of narrative fiction, the purpose of these um, other beings, these counterparts, can be to partly shed light on the main characters. So there's two kinds of prime universes. There's the one that we're first introduced to, which we spend most of the movie in, and then there's <laughs> the talk of the alpha universe, where it's first discovered that you can do the, the traveling. But the idea is that those beings and their different experiences kind of give insights into Evelyn's main life, the one that we first presented with. And then we get a sense of Evelyn having all these internal capacities inside of her that she sort of is able to see based on the certain choice that she would have made, whether she marries someone or, you know, whether she starts this kind of business or that kind of business, whether she winds up being straight or gay, you know, all of those little aspects of herself, which she confronts, give her, they seem to kind of get integrated by the end of the film, where she says, ah, I kind of see myself in the prism and I now know myself better. It's not merely just encountering different people for her. The fact that they seem to be somehow related to her in a significant way allows her to do that integration work. Yeah, that's interesting. One thing I've been thinking about after watching the movie a second time was whether at the end of the movie, we're supposed to imagine that Evelyn and Joy, Jobu Tubaki, still have this power to kind of see into the rest of the multiverse, see all these other possibilities. And it seems like, yes, and maybe that's part of how they're able to see their lives as significant. They still have this kind of superpower, which maybe throws a wrench into what I was saying earlier about the question of meaning. But the, what I really like about this yeah, narrative device is that it allows for, especially Evelyn, to imagine how her life could have gone differently if she had made sometimes major, but sometimes apparently insignificant choices at different points in her past. Actually, one of my other favorite multiverse sci-fi stories is that I think it's Blake Crouch. There's a, a novel called Dark Matter, where this is the same kind of premise. And there's some insight into seeing how things could have gone for you if you'd made a different choice years ago. And, you know, at one point in this movie, everything everywhere all at once, Evelyn's character says to her husband, Wayman, I, I shouldn't have married you. I should have listened to my dad. I shouldn't have run away with you. She really is regretting the choices that she made. So all of that really kind of makes the audience feel the significance of each individual choice. So to go back to the stuff about free will, I think it's interesting that the movie is saying the choices that we make, even the ones that don't at the conscious level as life-altering choices, they do ultimately add up to character forming, 
self-forming actions to use lingo from the free will and moral responsibility literature. There is a puzzle built in here. And the puzzle is how can it be that the significance of my life in this universe can be impacted by what happens in other universes to my counterpart? For example, we watch the RS agents have a relationship with Evelyn in another universe, in a universe where they have sausage fingers and they have this very, very funny, but poignant relationship. And then we skip back to the current universe where they're at war. They're very much antagonistic to each other, but it informs what the audience thinks about their relationship in this universe and what Evelyn might think about their relationship. And it softens her. But why? Because it's another universe with another counterpart with very different relationships. Why is that? And I wonder whether that's a flaw, not just in this film, but in all films that rely on this technique. Because this seems to be a common trope in multiverse themed fiction, is that mm -hmm. when we learn more about what could have happened, we think we know more about what is happening. When I saw the parallel universe with the sausage fingers, I, I took away from that parallel universe, Evelyn's recognition of the goodness of this other character. Now in that universe, she has this romantic relationship with a Deirdre, uh, the IRS agent. I'm not sure that she's an IRS agent in the other universe. We don't really find out, but she, the, she's able to see aspects of that person, the good qualities in that person as something to enjoy or cherish maybe. And maybe she brings that back into the other universe, you know, her knowledge of the goodness of that person and maybe the relationship there impacts how she sees things here, but I'm not really sure. It is a good question why that's so prevalent in multiverse fiction. I mean, if we imagined a real world parallel of that, assume that Jason and I have a certain kind of relationship and he feels like he knows me in a certain way. And then I discover that actually I'm a, a twin who was separated at birth and that my parents put up the other identical person up for adoption and Jason and I encounter him. And he's leading a wonderful life. Like he's this really kind, benevolent person, quite different to me in a lot of ways, let's say. And Jason says, you know, all the stuff that I really dislike about Mark, Mark's identical twin, wow, has he got all these virtues. And then he starts to transmute them to say, well, this has changed my relationship with Mark because obviously there must be this internal capacity for this love and care, even though around me, he's a careless asshole. And so I've learned all this stuff about Mark through experiences with his twin. And we can imagine something like that, but it would strike us as a bit strange. The idea that you could, in other words, the total stranger, really, someone who just happens to share my physical appearance, that we could learn anything more about me through it. But that is the trope that goes on in the counterparts, is that really you've got these kind of identical twins in these other universes who you've never met before, who've led their own lives, but somehow there's a move to say, well, we could learn things about ourselves through encounters with them. Maybe it's just the same way that we can learn things about ourselves with encounters with other people or encounters with our past, that just really having access to other kinds of information, other kinds of ways of being is a way to enrich ourselves. And there's mm -hmm. a sense in which this is what initially drives joy in a positive direction is the sense of going, wow, there's all this information that you can suddenly access and the characters are able to download skills. But then there's the curse of knowledge. There's the, the seeing all the eventualities, which basically drives joy mad. And I wonder if there's a parallel here in the way that we lead our lives, which is that, you know, you do too much philosophy and it drives you mad. 
You got me thinking maybe part of what's going on is when a character sees how things could have gone and maybe even thinks given the premise that all the eventualities are realized, it's just like a matter of chance or luck, which world you're in. And you might think, you know, if you developed this vicious character, but a counterpart, this is really virtuous person, you might think, well, <laughs> it's just, it's not up to me. Like, that's just how it is. It's, it's related to moral luck. It seems like you could criticize the vicious person, whereas you would praise the virtuous person, but like, well, they're both the inevitable upshots of this whole multiverse scheme. So you might think when you see the other character, you think, oh, <laughs> there, but for the grace of God, go, well, I could have been just like that. And maybe that's what is being brought back to the main kind of storyline. It's like, well, if all these are possibilities, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't be so critical, or maybe I shouldn't. I mean, <laughs> the negative side of that is maybe you think, well, there's nothing to praise or nothing to be thankful for express gratitude towards other people for that sort of thing. There's a worry here that if you take the moral luck problem very seriously, you're left without any grounds for praising and blaming at all. So earlier I asked you the question, is it you in the other world? And you said, well, no, it's a counterpart of me. Um, but that's not going to solve my problem because my problem is, so what makes it a counterpart of you? Now that becomes especially significant when we talk about things like having a very different character in another universe, or that counterpart is a very different character. And if we think that your character constitutes who you are, if you believe in a psychological criterion of identity, well, then that's not you. And it, in virtue of what is it a counterpart? It doesn't seem to be a counterpart if what matters is your psychology. So then we start to ask the question, so what makes you your counterpart in another possible universe? I mean, one thing you could say is just the movie is kind of running with similarities. Um, even in a universe where it, you get this flashback in a kind of 2001 a Space Odyssey parallel of humans evolving with hot dog fingers, even still, zoom forward to the present day, it's, you know, the same actress who looks very similar to Evelyn, but with hot dog fingers. And I think, okay, I know that's her because she looks exactly the same but for this one change where it's really hard to imagine that with a different evolutionary history. Anyway, I, that's just to solve the movie's problem. Like we can just tell in the movie, but metaphysically, which again, I don't think the movie really cares too much about, but metaphysically, what could we say about how the counterpart counts as your counterpart? Why is that your counterpart and not your identical twins counterpart say there? I think you have to go beyond similarity. I think you'll probably have to tell some story about in virtue of what in other possible worlds, your counterpart counts as your counterpart. Maybe you have to tell a story about how, say when I make this decision, but my counterpart makes that decision, they share some kind of causal history or something like that. You could have some kind of bodily or psychological continuity criterion or something like that. But I do think it has to go beyond just similarity, which is all the movie really needs for us to follow what's going on. I suppose if we take this notion that what you have is branching universes at different choices, that you're going to have these different degrees of how related these counterparts are. And there's a point in the film where there's almost like a heat map where you can see the links. And they say that, you know, this particular Evelyn is so powerful because she made all the worst choices, which leaves all the possibilities available for her, that she's kind of one move away from all these alternative possibilities, as opposed to the people who, you know, made good choices and specialized themselves. Mm -hmm. We can imagine that you have two Evelyns who are identical, but 
in their last breath, the one asks for tea at her bedside and the other one asks for coffee. But otherwise, their lives are totally the same and the universe is totally the same. The other question I suppose we might ask is, when do these beings get brought into existence? Is it that what we have is an infinite number of parallel universes which are kind of growing up organically? Or is it that the universes are created at these points of decision? If it's the latter, in other words, what happens is on her deathbed when Evelyn says, I want tea, is that at that moment, a new universe gets created with an Evelyn who is on her deathbed, who's popped into existence for the first time, who then orders coffee. And so it's an interesting way about thinking about the history of what these other universes are. I'm not sure the film answers it, but there might be different ways in which these things are generated and whether we can make good philosophical sense of it. Yeah, that's good. I was thinking at every decision point, that's when you get new universes. It's almost like fissioning of the entire universe. But I don't think that one, say it's just a really simple case where you were deciding between two options. And so there's two universes that, that branch off from the same shared trunk. I guess I don't think either of the two resulting universes has kind of priority over the other. They're both branches from the same trunk. So it's not a question of whether one Evelyn has just popped into existence. Both of them have in a sense, but they both come from the same common trunk Evelyn. So it's parallel to fission cases in, in personal identity. Now, I hadn't thought about this before, but you might think there's different, there's different metaphysical ontologies that you could have about the multiverse and the different universes within it that track or that parallel the different views on time. So in the metaphysics of time, there are people who think only the present exists. There are others who think, you know, all times are equally real, sort of the temporal equivalent of modal realism. And there's room for others too. Another increasingly popular view is the growing block view where the past and the present are real, but the future is not real yet. With each present moment, reality kind of grows. It's a growing block. And you could apply any of those kinds of temporal pictures to the, to the to multiverse and how it's unfolding. I guess you could think at the sort of start of it all, if there is one, there's just this one universe that the multiverse is going to expand from. You could think that with each moment, it's like the growing block, or maybe we should only focus on the time slice, only the present. Or you could think, this is, I guess, what I would have been tempted to say from the get-go is, well, all the universes start to finish are sort of equally real. They're, they're bringing that block universe view to bear on the, on the multiverse. But we just are kind of following along in time with the story and looking at a kind of cross-section of the various that exist within the multiverse. But anyway, I guess to go back to what you were saying about where the universes come from and whether the persons within them come into being, I guess I would want to say, no, they, they don't just pop into being because they have this shared trunk. And the way I would want to think about that is you could see the tree as a whole from this outside of time, outside the multiverse perspective, and it would all be equally real a kind of manifold of events and universes. So this might indicate one big difference between the multiverse theory as it's presented in the film at least and modal realism. So on modal realism, any thing that is possible, any world that is possible is real. Now I watched this film with Mark, but also with a partner and he only likes movies where there's a wedding dress because he's a fashion designer. <laughs> and he said, after I said, what do you think of the movie? And he said, didn't like it. And I said, why didn't you like it? He said, there's not a wedding dress. <laughs> I said, well, there, there must be a possible world where there's a wedding dress involved. He said, yeah, but 
it wasn't mentioned. So there isn't, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it wasn't one of the choices, right? No one got married. So so the the point is, it seems like on multiverse theory, there's going to be far fewer universes than on modal realism, because on modal realism, if a universe is generated each time a choice is made, because not every choice involves every possible option. I'm assuming it's limited to kind of what's plausible in one's mind at the time. And if marriage never comes up, then that's just never going to be one of the universes that that pops up. But on modal realism, it's possible that you get married. And so there is one where you get married. Right. So that does seem like a distinction. The wedding dress is the decider. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I think it's consistent with the movie's premise that there are all these universes that we all see where all of those possibilities are realized. And maybe it's not just that the the multiverse is composed of these branches that result from choices, but like anytime something could have happened differently, not even someone could have chosen differently, just something could have happened differently. There's a universe where that's realized. And that's similar to the way that scientists do it working on quantum mechanics and talk about multiverses or thinking about things. It's not just choices, but any kind of apparent indeterminacy, even at the quantum level, like that could be, that could culminate in different possibilities. So I think that's consistent with the movie's premise, but yeah, they're focused on the ones that are helping them tell their story. And yeah, no wedding dresses, but lots of other strange possibilities. I wonder about the sense of the infinite. So if it's the case that there's an infinite number of these possible worlds, do all of those worlds, even if there is an infinite number of them, do they have to be logical worlds? Are there worlds where things that are impossible in our world could possibly happen in those possible worlds? It's a good question. I think... So there's different senses of possibility. I mean, there's what's logically possible. Maybe there's this distinct realm of the metaphysically possible and then what's possible consistent with the laws of our universe and that sort of thing. And I guess I don't think that there are possible worlds that involve contradictions. I don't think that logical impossibilities can be realized. So I think that does constrain even the infinite. I mean, you could have a universe very much like ours but in which there are slight differences and you can generate an infinite number of universes very similar to ours that don't even have different natural laws. But yeah, I mean, the reason that it starts to feel immense and chaotic in the movie is that, well, they go to <laughs> worlds that fairly have different natural laws and yeah, maybe they're giving up, you know, metaphysical possibility too. Maybe there are certain things that aren't metaphysically possible here in our world, but that, you know, there's some world with different laws of metaphysics or something like that. When it comes to the infinite, I think you can generate this, you know, infinite range of possibilities, even with the same laws of logic, laws of nature, that sort of thing. Well, then it seems impossible that there's a universe where all universes are nullified, right? Because that would mean the possible is impossible and Mm -hmm. that's a contradiction. So that does seem like a, a problem. Right. Yeah. You could have a possible world where the multiverse of the movie is realized and another possible world where it's the multiverse of the movie, but we don't get the happy ending, right? It's annihilation at the end. And those are distinct worlds. Each of those worlds includes many worlds, so to speak, many universes, but they're distinct possibilities. As soon as the movie allows for not just verse jumping, but affecting what's going on in different universes within the multiverse, you raise these kind of meta problems and the worry about the possibility of some action that would contradict something going on elsewhere in the multiverse. One of the experiences I have when I'm watching any movie is that I'll look at the actor and I'll think about all the other films that they were in. 
And so there's a sense in which there's a multiverse in film, so that you're imagining <laughs> the different roles that have been played by these people. And so Evelyn, for example, was the lead in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. The actor who plays her father was in Big Trouble in Little China. Jamie Lee Curtis is the R agent and was in you know a whole range of interesting films like Halloween and and so. There's a sense in which you start to think about what those characters are like in those other films and you start to draw these parallels. Mm -hmm. And because of the zaniness of this movie and you get all these different aspects of these characters, I thought it simulated that kind of like film lover's experience of what it's like to watch a film with famous people in it. Evelyn is also a, a Star Trek captain on Star Trek Discovery. And in Star Trek Discovery, she plays a counterpart from another <laughs> universe. <laughs> that is intruding on this universe because so the her in this universe dies very early and then we only meet the evil counterpart who's stuck okay. in this universe and we gain sympathy for her. So she plays exactly this role in Star Trek as well. That's funny. I think the first thing I saw Jamie Lee Curtis in as a kid was the reboot of Freaky Friday, which is a whole personal identity story. <laughs> but yeah, I like that idea that like it is sort of the the film lover's way of showing what's going on when you appreciate film and, you know, all the different movies that an actor has been in. The movie doesn't shy away from that at all, which I like in that it makes references to Michelle Yeoh's prior movies. Like, I mean, the whole Kung Fu stuff and then the references to the Matrix, like it's building on all these other movies throughout. And the Daniels earlier movie, Swiss Army Man, which I didn't enjoy nearly as much, but it was fun and similarly like weird and irreverent at times it, it refers to other movies too like jurassic park and its theme song is a big part of that movie so i like that these filmmakers are maybe this is kind of like just the meta thing to do but they're okay with making explicit that they're referencing all these other movies bringing that to mind so do you think that the counterparts owe each other moral obligations and do you think that the stakes are different if one of them dies we say, oh, well, there's an infinite number of these sort of counterpart clones <laughs> out there. So it's not a big deal if someone gets killed because we're looking at things from the perspective of not just the one universe, but from all states of affairs. Yeah, there's a funny line at one point where Michelle Yeoh's character Evelyn says, like, didn't you say there are so many of them? Like, why is this my problem? Just let all those other universes burn. But the only way to, like, get her involved in the main plot is to say, this, this is going to happen to you, too. Like, all the universes are in jeopardy. I do think if you have the power to do some good or prevent some harm for someone in this other part of the, the multiverse, like you've got to take them into account just as much as you would someone in a distant part of your own earth, let alone universe, right? So I do think they're all supposed to be individual persons, moral agents and patients, and we have to take their interests into account when figuring out what we ought to do. It's tricky in the movie because the way that say Evelyn affects what's going on in her counterparts universe is by sort of taking over her body and that might do some good or not. There might be worries about autonomy too in the vicinity, but yeah, insofar as you can benefit a counterpart, I would think would matter morally. In the movie, I think it's a joke that like, there's so many of these, so why care about them if, you know, there's an infinite number more, but I think that is supposed to be a joke. Like you should take their interests into account. That's interesting because the moral responsibility can go horizontally or vertically. Horizontally meaning another counterpart that exists now, however you understand now in time across universes, mm -hmm. but let's just ignore that problem. So another counterpart that exists now having obligations towards them or a counterpart that you will bring into existence by making certain choices. And so if you 
make choices that will make you unhappy, you're not just wronging yourself, you're wronging all the counterparts that split off from you afterwards that are unhappy mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you start to worry a little less when you know that the alternate choice was made somewhere and then all those, you know, descendant counterparts exist too. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so it's interesting if we marry this view with utilitarianism, the idea that you should act to maximize the good. If as soon as you're faced with a decision that all the other alternative decisions happen, it seems that whenever you try to maximize the good, you roll neutral because all the other counterparts just do the other thing. And so whatever you do, you get to zero or the same number that you, your choice doesn't actually matter. And so it seems like even if you do have the moral obligation to, to maximize the good, if we start to take into account all the other counterparts and all the other universes, can't do anything about it. And then we think, well, if ought implies can, well, then you can't actually do any maximizing because the other universes you know, are happening you know, without you. I mean, I suppose that Jobu Tupaki goes she would accept the conclusion of that argument and just say, so there's no moral obligation. In fact, this is very Nietzschean, but at one point she says basically that the word right was invented by people who were afraid or something like that. So you could go like a, you could become a moral nihilist. Just think there are no moral obligations once you realize how the multiverse is set up. But I guess if we're supposed to think that the characters are moral agents and they are responsible for what they do, they have some kind of control. If you think this Evelyn has moral agency, she makes this choice. Well, then there's some counterpart of her that makes the other choice. It seems like, well, the other counterpart must exist. They're kind of like just a mirror reflection of what's going on in this universe, Seems, you know, just making the other choice. It starts to look like that one doesn't have moral agency and so isn't responsible. But then, look, I just chose one Evelyn at random. It seems like the whole premise calls into question whether any of them have moral agency. So yeah, I wonder if we can relax the premise a little bit though and say maybe different decisions could have happened, maybe they do in some cases, but each Evelyn is a moral agent and makes a, you know, a significant moral choice and has control in doing it. Well, then maybe you could still have moral obligations and keep on implies can and all that. I'm not sure. It seems important to only constrain the society clause in the utilitarian claim to your own universe. So. Otherwise you're going to get this mess, as Marx suggests, that everything just balances out. So utilitarianism is the view that an action's right just in case it maximizes utility for society as a whole. So we'd have to locate society within your universe. The problem is your universe is constantly branching as well. Right. So sure, we can ignore the ones that branched off before now, but from now on, you know, which ones do we count? I think it's a genuine problem. I don't know what kind of special kind of bigotry this is. You know, if speciesism is that is, you think animals are worth less than humans. You know, I'd, what is that? That like counterparts are worth less than you, Jason? You're just full of hate. <laughs> Maybe it's just that you can't control what happens in counterparts' universes, but you can perhaps have some influence over your own. Maybe it's that. Maybe that's the line you draw. They're worth just as much. It's just not your responsibility. Yeah. The utilitarian's always trying to figure out how we can know what the effect of our actions is going to be, what's going to promote the best consequences, that sort of thing. Well, the multiverse hypothesis and the, the one depicted in the movie is a nice way of highlighting. You can see all these possibilities and you just got to choose the right one. It, if you look at the movie's premise that way, it's not making a metaphysical claim about, you know, the real existence of all these different universes, but 
showing you the way things could go, it'll maybe highlight for us the significance of those choices. To lob one in Mark's court, there's an equal problem for the Kantian. So it sounds like you're using other universes as a means to your own universe's well-being. So, you know, by not performing certain choices that result in harm to the other universe, you perform the right action in this universe. But in doing so, there must be a split off where something terrible happens because that's the view, right? So it sounds like they're acting as a means or not acting as a means, but they're being used as a means to your own ends. Ah, uh, sounds like a bunch of second order effects that the content's not liable for. Or you got to embrace <laughs> the nihilism, right? Like just let it all burn. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.